You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags. Season 1 is called Child Molesting Priests and focuses on the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield, Massachusetts. Similar stories of evil could also be told about every single one of the 197 American Catholic dioceses plagued by sex abuse scandals. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com for a bibliography, victim statements, witness affidavits, and court documents, including never-before-published secret memos from church leaders. This source material provided the details and much of the verbatim dialogue for these episodes. Warning, this podcast deals with incidents of child sexual abuse and the brutal murder of a 13-year-old boy. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 6, Father X, Part 2 On a hot afternoon in mid-June 1992, Father X sat across a desk from Sister Mary Lynch in the principal's office at Our Lady of Hope School in Springfield. The pastor and the principal were finishing up what was supposed to be routine business the signing of the staff contracts for the following school year. Father X had been boss of the large parish and its school for two and a half years and was less than impressed with Sister Mary Lynch's work ethic and attitude. He listened as the nun mentioned each teacher and staff member by name as she presented their contract to be signed. It was clear she considered his signature merely a formality and considered herself the decision-maker at the school. Well, she was about to get a big surprise. And here's my contract, Sister Mary Lynch said, sliding the paper across her desk. Oh, yes. Father X paused, pretending to read the legalese, then looked up at the nun. Sister Mary, I'll sign this contract, but it's the last one. Excuse me, Father? This is the last contract I'll sign for you. What? The nun was stunned, totally blindsided. What did you say? Well, to be blunt, you're not doing a good job running this school, and I'm encouraging you to consider other future options and opportunities. The priest then signed the appropriate line and slid the contract back across the desk. After next year, of course, he grabbed the cane that leaned against the wall. Please, Father, specifically explain why are you declining to sign another contract with me? Are are you trying to fire me? Not at all, Father X replied. He grimaced as he slowly got to his feet, wincing as his throbbing hip burned and ached. His hip replacement surgery was scheduled for later that week, only 50 years old and already falling apart. You can return for another year and then, but why, she asked. Well, first of all, every single day when the final bell rings, you leave immediately before the buses even. I'm going to take care of my mother. She's dying. You know that. The nun shook her head sadly. She's dying. So I bring my work home with me to do at her house while she's sleeping. Yes, the priest was aware of her burden, but there was more to it than that. He felt Sister Mary Lynch was very condescending, dismissive even. She acted as if his presence and sage advice on matters of school administration were a distraction rather than a blessing. 
Well, the priest said, I'll go into further details later. I have to leave. I'm supposed to be at the doctor's in ten minutes. He lied, pointing at the wall clock. And I'm as slow as the dickens, using this damn cane. Father X hobbled out of the principal's office, leaving the dumbfounded nun sitting behind her desk, wondering what the hell just happened. Jack opened his eyes and stared at his alarm clock, then groaned. He thought he'd set the alarm before drunkenly stumbling into bed. Now, even if he hurried, he'd still be late for his morning shift at the restaurant, which sucked because Chef Jimmy was already pissed at him and had lectured that tardiness was not acceptable. Oh, well, didn't matter. Chef Jimmy was just being a prick just like every other kitchen boss that Jack had ever known. Jack rolled out of bed and groaned again, hung over. Bad, but not the worst, that's for sure. Weird, though. He'd been partying the night before with a bunch of pals from high school, but he hadn't partied that hard. Well, by his standards, anyway. Half bottle of Jägermeister plus some beers and who knows how many bong hits. Now 21 years old, Jack had been drinking, drunk, or recovering from a hangover almost continuously since he was 14. He began boozing soon after the horrible night he spent with Father X at St. Matthew's. Now headed into his third year at an expensive liberal arts college outside Boston, he was a mediocre student. He'd also been smoking weed just about every day since his junior year of high school. Ganja and alcohol made it easier to chill with the girls and, hopefully, talk them into bed. The ganja and alcohol also made him less edgy. Because unless Jack had a good buzz going, the dude was always angry, always railing against authority, and more than slightly obsessed with death. He loved to quote scary verses from the Book of Revelations, which also freaked people out. Jack didn't go to church anymore. He quit the Catholic scene the moment he went away to college and got beyond his parents' control. This summer, though, he was back at home, sleeping in his boyhood room, and his lack of attendance at Mass was becoming a source of tension with his folks. Oh, well. That was his parents' problem, he thought, not his. The two state police detectives pulled into the driveway of the Our Lady of Hope rectory where Father X stood, struggling to open the front door of his Lincoln Town car. The crutches made even the simplest task a real pain. Hello, Father, said the taller of the two cops, wondering if you have some time to answer a question or two. Well, of course, anything to help the constabulary. Will it take long? I'm in a rush right now, already late for a meeting. These darn crutches really slow me down. Uh, We just have a couple questions for you about a fellow priest, the detective said. Richard Levine. Oh, Father X frowned. I should have known. I heard the news. It had been a week and a half since Father Levine's surprise plea bargain in the molestation case. It's about the Danny Croto murder, actually, the cop said, from back in 1972. Oh, my. I was assigned to Our Lady of Sacred Heart when Danny was murdered. Yeah, Father, we know. Were you acquainted with Danny Croto? No, not at all. I didn't even know the poor boy. He was from St. Catharines and just attended the Olsh School, not the Olsh Parish, where I was much more active. I was training altar boys, hearing confessions, celebrating weddings and funerals, that sort of thing not really involved with the school. Are you friends with Father Levine? Friends? No, not really. Acquaintances more than anything. I see him at diocesan functions and the like. Father, did you know that some people suspect Richard Levine killed Danny Croto? Yes, I'd heard that rumor, but I don't believe it. You don't? No, like I said, I don't really know him that well. But he's no murderer, that's for sure. Father X made a pouty face. He's a priest, after all. That same day, David Stanley reread the photocopy of the four-page letter he'd just mailed to Father Richard Sneezak, the priest, 
third in command at the Springfield Diocese, had been very attentive during their hour-and-a-half-long phone call earlier in the week. David told him all about Father X's abuse and Bishop McGuire's failure to address it. David also suggested ways the diocese could help heal the community, punish the guilty, and prevent these sex crimes in the future. After the call, David decided to put all of this in a letter to ensure the diocese had his account and his ideas in writing. His message was straightforward and strong, and his tone polite and respectful. The final page included his three, quote, initial requests. Demand number one, set up a three-person lay panel, independent of the diocese, that would review all allegations of sexual misconduct against priests. Number two, set up a fund to pay for therapy for the victims of all the child-molesting priests. And three, have a letter from the bishop read aloud at all the parishes where Father X had served. The letter, David said, should identify Father X as a pedophile and encourage other victims and their families to come forward for free counseling. In David's view, these were just the first steps the church should take to, quote, resolve this moral and ethical wrong. And he was just getting started. You fired one of our best principals, Sister Carol shouted, pointing at the priest. Sister Mary Lynch is an amazing educator. Sister Carol was madder than hell, head of the Sisters of St. Joseph Religious Order and Sister Mary Lynch's boss, Sister Carol also happened to be an old friend of Father X's. Or so he'd thought. That's why he'd hobbled on his crutches across the lobby of nunnery headquarters at Mount Marie in the city of Holyoke, out of respect for his old friend, Sister Carol. She's not one of your best principals, Father X replied. Why didn't you document any troubles you had with her? Sister Carol asked. You should have communicated those problems, first to her, then, if necessary, to her supervisor here at Mount Marie. Well, no one ever suggested I do such a thing, the priest said. Why didn't anyone tell me to do that? That's the way it's always been done. The nun shook her head. You don't have the power to fire her. Everyone knows that. She was so tired of dealing with priests with no educational training, meddling in school management especially inept priests with sketchy backgrounds, like Father X. Well, nobody ever told me, he said indignantly. Kind of late now, anyways. A couple of days later, Father X stood, still on crutches, in front of Bishop Marshall's huge desk for an emergency meeting, which, he had assumed, was about the firing of Sister Mary Lynch. There's been a complaint from a Mr. David Stanley, Bishop Marshall said. Very serious allegations supported by his parents that you acted <clears throat> inappropriately with him in 1976. D David, St David Stanley, that was a... Father X stuttered. Well, there was a dreadful misunderstanding that Bishop McGuire had resolved and also... The bishop interrupted. The family claims Bishop McGuire broke promises regarding your punishment and rehabilitation. I'll be blunt. Pending the results of an investigation, you are hereby suspended from your priestly duties and are now on official leave of absence from Our Lady of Hope. The bishop's words were like a chest full of ice water. But it was silence, the bishop said tersely. He pointed at the priest. Due to the Father Levine situation, with all the added attention on the church, we need to be extra cautious about any allegations. Unfortunately for you, we need to take action. You may return to the Our Lady of Hope Rectory and retrieve all your personal belongings. Then, report to Bishop Dupre. He'll find you a new place to stay and tell you what's next. Do you understand? Yes, Bishop, Father X said. The priest slowly turned and crutched his way towards the closed door. He grabbed the knob, then paused, 
turned to the bishop as to say something, but then thought better of it and hobbled on. Bishop Marshall sighed. If the complaint from David Stanley was legit, and there was no reason to doubt the man, then Father X would be spending some quality time at a psych clinic for bad priests. And if a priest sexually assaulted one child, it was highly likely he'd done it before and would try to do it again, unless he got help. But even then, in Bishop Marshall's view, the priest's reputation would be tainted, making him relatively useless to the diocese. Bishop Marshall was new in town. He'd been Vermont's bishop until 1992, when he became the Pope-appointed sheriff sent to clean up the Springfield Diocese and protect the church from any further embarrassment. Bishop Marshall was a hell of a lot tougher than Bishop McGuire, who'd retired amidst the Levine scandal when it became apparent he'd gone easy on child-molesting priests. After a couple months on the job, however, Bishop Marshall realized the mess was a lot bigger and the scandal much deeper than expected. Good thing his second-in-command, the newly promoted Auxiliary Bishop Thomas Dupre, knew his way around the Springfield Swamp. Auxiliary Bishop Dupre, a canon lawyer and legal expert, had been McGuire's right-hand man since 1977, serving as the Chancellor of the Diocese, the boss and disciplinarian to all diocesan priests. I'm the sacrificial lamb, Father X said aloud, mixing another gin and tonic for himself. He was drinking alone in his temporary room in the rectory of a parish where nobody knew his name. And after this mess, he'd probably never be given a parish again, might even be tossed out of the priesthood. And for what? After all, Bishop McGuire had dealt with this way back in 1976 when Father X had been transferred out of Our Lady of Hope the first time. Now, 16 years later, it's like deja vu, and he's been mysteriously disappeared from Our Lady of Hope again. His replacement, Father Alexander, just showed up and took over, and, this being midsummer, no one seemed to even notice that Father X was gone. Soon, he'd be headed to Ontario for an initial five-day evaluation at Southdown, the Canadian clinic for sinning priests. That's where they sent the drunks and the junkies, the rapists and the child molesters. Father X took a long sip of his drink. Thank God the bishop didn't know about the other boys. And then he prayed, half drunkenly, to the Lord in heaven above, begging that the rest of his victims never come forward. It was October 14th, 1992, and David was sick of writing letters to the Chancery, but he thought pestering them via mail was the best way to hold the diocese's proverbial feet to the fire, let them know he was watching and expecting results, and let them worry, wondering if he'd go to the media or get a lawyer. But the diocese was unaccustomed to being held accountable by anyone. Only a handful of David's many questions were answered, and getting any response from the diocese took forever. Often, weeks passed before David would receive even a cursory response to a very detailed request for information. Frankly, he was beginning to think he'd been overly optimistic about how willing the church was to hear his views. His latest missive, addressed directly to Bishop Marshall, was five pages long and included 15 bullet points. Some were basic questions about facts and details, dates and years. Had other complaints been filed against Father X? Had the priest ever received counseling? His other points, though, were more aggressive and less deferential than earlier attempts at communication, and David didn't want to write any more letters to the bishop. Every contact with the diocese caused him stress, bringing up old anxieties. David got stomach aches and migraines. He was so damn tired of the emotional roller coaster, but he couldn't abandon his quest. Not yet, not before Father X was publicly exposed as a sinner and pedophile. 
and not before the diocese offered the victims of these monsters and their families the counseling they needed for free. His parents needed help dealing with their guilt and shame. With counseling, maybe they'd finally realize that they were just not equipped to recognize a child rapist disguised as a priest. Perhaps, at last, they'd stop blaming themselves. A week later, Auxiliary Bishop Thomas Dupre opened the most recent correspondence from David Stanley. Bishop Dupre had grown weary of this man's questions, accusations, and suggestions. Bishop Marshall was also tired of him. That's why he asked his underling to read and provide legal commentary on this latest letter. Dupre's training as a canon lawyer came in handy, and his knowledge of the inner workings of the diocese and its history of troubles was equally valuable. For instance, the second question on David's 15-point litany inquired if there had been accusations against Father X before David and his dad and his pal Benny O'Brien complained to the bishop in 1976. Bishop Dupre put a fresh piece of paper into his typewriter to begin a memo from one bishop to another, a private communication between blessed colleagues typed with the belief the words would never be seen by outsiders, a memo to be placed in the so-called special file, kept secret and hidden away under lock and key. Quote, I was not at the chancery at that time and cannot say anything of my own knowledge, Dupre typed. It is possible that Monsignor Viao knows something. I believe the special files were kept by Bishop Weldon himself. I also believe his executor inherited those files and destroyed them, end quote. In other words, any documentation of accusations against Father X prior to 1976 would have been placed among other, quote, special files and, subsequently, destroyed. Publicly, in court depositions and media interviews, Bishop Dupre repeatedly denied that any secret records pertaining to problem priests had been destroyed, which was a lie. And on other occasions, Bishop Dupre privately bragged about the record's destruction. There was no written evidence to haunt any Springfield clergyman who committed crimes. A week later, David sat at his desk in his Washington, D.C. apartment, reading the latest two-page response from Bishop Marshall. More half-answers and evasive replies, but there was a little bit of good news. According to the bishop, Father X had been placed on administrative leave and was not allowed to, quote, exercise his priesthood in a public manner. That status would last indefinitely until his shrinks provided further reports. Father X hadn't yet started the treatment program. There were only 48 beds at the psych hospital, so he was still waiting for his slot to open. He was scheduled for at least five months of clinical therapy before he'd be discharged back into the custody of the diocese. The bishop's response letter also announced the formation of the clunkily named Quote, commission to investigate improper conduct of diocesan personnel, which had been created to deal with the crimes of Father Richard Levine. The tribunal, the bishop promised, would also hear complaints about Father X and provide guidance in any final decisions regarding the priest. David decided to take a wait-and-see approach. Of course, at the time, he had no idea how long he'd have to wait to see results. On January 6, 1993, Bishop Marshall sat behind his typewriter. This memo to Bishop Dupre was too important and too secret to dictate to his secretary. There would be no carbon copy or Xerox. These words were intended for Bishop's eyes only. 
quote, to make sure we have a clear understanding on our special files and because things could be heating up again, I would like to commit our policy to writing. This memo itself should be placed in the privileged file, end quote. The Diocese of Springfield has several different names for the files locked away in a chancery vault, privileged, special, secret, confidential, private, but the classifications all meant the same thing. The bishops believed these documents would never be surrendered to judges or police or prosecutors, and certainly not to plaintiffs and the legal sharks now circling the church thirsty for blood. Bishop Marshall wasn't much of a typist, more of a hunter and pecker, so the memo is rife with typos and strikeouts. But the missive's message was crystal clear. The most damning stuff about the worst offenders needed to be kept under lock and key. Bishop Marshall was very specific in this memo. There would be a public file, which could be subpoenaed by the courts, that included the banal, routine paperwork usually found in a personnel file. The secret files, however, would include all the, quote, truly private and personal material including notes by staff about misbehaving priests. And while Bishop Marshall didn't write this, both bishops knew that, if asked, they could deny the existence of the secret files, an allowable lie, under canon law, to protect the Mother Church and her priests. Bishop Marshall's proposed policy cannily sought to prevent any potential challenge to the files' secrecy. For instance, quote, in complaints against the priest, perhaps it should be in the privilege file if handwritten in the public file if typed, because the author is more likely to have a copy of a typed letter, end quote. Also, if the diocese sent a written reply in response to a complaint, the whole exchange needs to be in the regular file because the complainant would probably have kept the response. In other words, if a plaintiff would be in possession of a document that should have been in a priest's personal file but wasn't in the, quote, public file provided to the court, the existence of the secret records could be revealed. The bishops themselves would take on the delicate task of sorting through these files. Father, Bishop Dupre will see you now, the elderly female secretary said to Father X, who had spent the last ten minutes nervously pacing in the chancery waiting room. Until now, the summer of 1993 had almost been like a vacation for Father X. He'd recently completed a five-month stint at Southdown, the Canadian psych hospital, for wayward priests. Southdown wasn't bad, the food was decent, and Father X actually lost some weight doing laps every day in the hospital's swimming pool. The many therapy sessions had been painful at first, but eventually brought him some relief. For the first time ever, Father X had honest, non-judgmental conversations about his sexuality. On the therapist's couch, he was able to talk about the dirty secrets that had haunted him for decades. But in this moment, Father X was anxious. He couldn't return to the priesthood until the Commission to Investigate Improper Conduct of Diocesan Personnel made his recommendations to Bishop Marshall. That had happened the day before. His fate had been decided, and he was about to hear the verdict. Bishop Dupre, sitting behind his large desk, thumbed through a pile of official-looking papers. I'll get right to the point, the bishop said. The commission found the testimony and affidavits from David Stanley and his parents and others very convincing. And so, Bishop Marshall feels obligated to take action. Bishop Dupre read from one of the official-looking papers. You will no longer function as a priest in any parish. You shall receive sex offender treatment and be monitored. Well, that's it, Father X thought to himself as the bishop droned on, reading through the details of his punishment. No more trying to fool himself. Deep down, he'd known this would be the outcome. Although that very morning, for a brief moment, he daydreamed that the bishop would forgive his sins and welcome him back into the priestly brotherhood. Instead, 
His brothers had abandoned him. Just know we're not abandoning you, the bishop said. I understand that you and your therapist at Southdown discussed options if you are unable to return to the priesthood. Yes, Bishop, the backup plan, Father X said glumly. Becoming a teacher might be rewarding, or a counselor of some sort, perhaps for drug addicts or alcoholics. Yes, Bishop Dupre said enthusiastically. Not a teacher, though. That wouldn't be good. But a drug and alcohol counselor. What would you need for that? A master's degree? Well, I did look into a program at Springfield College, Father X said. I believe there's even a distance learning option. I have friends upstate that I could stay with. Let me run this by Bishop Marshall, Bishop Dupre said. If we can make this work, we'll take care of your tuition. And we'll keep paying for your stipend and health insurance with the understanding that our support ends once you get settled in the civilian sector. He nodded decisively. Is there anything else? No, Bishop. Thank you, Bishop. I'm very appreciative. Father X rose from the chair. Very grateful. He was lucky, all things considered. Could have been a lot worse. Way back in 1976, young David Stanley had been brave and strong enough to ward off the priest's attack and escape into the bathroom. From Father X's perspective, the incident had been a failure because there was no sexual gratification. In retrospect, had he consummated the act, who knows how the bishop would have ruled. Father X shuddered to think of the outcome if Jack Ballard had come forward, or Jason, an altar boy and student at Olsh, or Michael, another Olsh altar boy from the early 1970s, or any one of the now nameless altar boys and school children from St. Matthew's and Our Lady of Hope. All those innocent embraces turned dirty and shameful. He'd grabbed and groped and stroked, pretending to be a playful hug, and all without consequence. What's the matter with you? Jack's mother asked in exasperation. Her son was tired, hungover, and not in the mood to fight with his parents again. It was the spring of 1996, and Jack was now a 25-year-old college grad with a postgraduate certificate from a respected culinary school. A skilled chef, Jack had dreams of someday opening his own restaurant, but at the moment, he was between jobs and between apartments. So, once again, he was crashing at his parents' house and staying in his old room just until he was able to get settled. His demons, though, were still getting in the way, big time. Jack was drinking and drugging and fighting and fucking like a madman. He was still obsessed with death and the book of Revelations. His heart was dark, and he often felt alone despite partying constantly and having tons of hot chicks. He exploited women, then abandoned them. Jack also had a hard time getting along with other men, especially those in positions of authority like bosses and head chefs and health inspectors. And that was weird because he also felt like he'd spent his whole life avoiding conflict. He was plagued by self-doubt and fear, so he compensated for his low self-esteem by acting like a real prick. Leave me alone, he said to his mom. Why won't you come to church with us? What happened to you? His mother asked, her voice slightly softer. Did a priest touch you? For a second or two, Jack stood silent with fire in his stare. Then his lips curled into a snarl. You guessed it. Without another word, he stormed outside, slamming the door behind him. He needed a goddamn smoke. He could not wait to move out of their house. Inside, his parents and his sister were taken aback by this sudden flash of anger, stunned, speechless. In fact, none of them would speak of the incident for another dozen years. And why did you leave the priesthood? Asked a guy named Jerry, the senior hiring manager for the company that owned the Harmony House Rehab Clinic. That was three years ago, in 1993, X said. He was ready for this question. Even though I enjoyed what I was doing, I felt I'd gone as far as I could go in the church hierarchy, 
Plus, I had just turned 50 years old. I needed a change in my life. So I went back to school, and here I am. This was his second interview with the company, and it seemed to be going well. He really wanted the job. Harmony House was close to his new apartment, less than a 10-minute commute, and the pay was decent, which was super important because X had fewer than a dozen years to stockpile money for retirement. Harmony House was a 40-bed, 40-day residential program for addicts with insurance trying to kick booze and drugs. Counselors used pre-approved techniques of listening, encouragement, and advice. And it was a 9-to-5 position, not the sort of job that makes you bring work home with you. Okay, then, Jerry grinned. One last question. When can you start? Tell me a secret, Cindy said to Jack. It was April 1999, a month before their wedding. Lasagna was baking in the oven, and they were enjoying a bottle of wine. Jack was mildly drunk and totally in love. He felt so lucky. Cindy was smart and beautiful, loving and playful, and for some reason, she tolerated his moods and insecurities. What kind of secret? Tell me your deepest secret, she said with a giggle. You're about to become my beloved husband. I want to know everything about you. Jack felt the old anxieties start to well up inside. There were so many dark things that would shock her, like his porn addiction and compulsive masturbation, his orgy fantasies, or his fear that he might be gay, the fear he'd previously tried to quell by having sex with as many women as possible, and none of those sins were even remotely as bad as his deepest secret, Father X. Come on, she prodded. Tell me something you've never told anyone before. Well, Jack said. Then he pulled out a pack of cigarettes. He took his time, trying to stall, trying to figure out if, or how, to deliver the big reveal. He sparked the smoke and took a deep puff, then exhaled, slowly. Well, when I was ten years old, he paused again and took another long drag. He'd tried to avoid thinking about Father X for the past fifteen years, but sometimes his defenses failed and the monster crept back into his head, Jack would be plagued for days by guilt and fear and self-abusive thoughts. He really didn't want to dive back into that darkness, but Cindy, the love of his life, was insistent, and the idea of keeping this secret for the rest of his life seemed equally bad. When I was ten, he said, exhaling another cloud of smoke, I was sexually molested. The horrified look on Cindy's face told Jack he'd made a big mistake. His mood swung suddenly, and he slammed his fist on the table. And I don't want to talk about it. Do you hear me? Cindy nodded and tried to blink back her tears as Jack stormed out of the kitchen. A month later, they were married, but the topic remained off-limits for the next nine years. At work, X was bored out of his skull. So weary of listening to Harmony House's clientele, the same old dramas and histrionic histories, day in, day out, tales of drugging and drinking and bad mistakes, their big disappointments, their problems, their disasters, and all their crying, gallons of tears, tons of Kleenex soggy with bottomless sadness. And the worst part, X was psychically immune to their stories. Their sobs and sorrow didn't affect him at all. He still pretended to care, though, always ready with a box of tissues when the waterworks inevitably sprang. As far as his bosses were concerned, X did a good job because he showed up every day and never griped. He couldn't afford to complain, of course. His boredom at work paid for the rent on his apartment and the insurance for his fancy car. It bought his groceries and the bottles of cheap gin and store-brand tonic that made his evenings more tolerable. 
Five more years, he thought, and he could retire to a life of leisure, free of Harmony House. Almost weekly, while shopping at Walmart or the Price Chopper, he'd see someone who'd been through the program. He never remembered any names or details about their sad lives. Those things never stuck, but their faces did. Most of the former clients act like he's invisible. They don't want to chat and catch up. They didn't want to answer the inevitable, how are you doing? They didn't want to be reminded of their time at Harmony House, how they poured their heart out to this stranger. And they most certainly never gave a damn about him, his childhood traumas, his failures, his rejections. If anyone inquired about his life before becoming a drug and alcohol counselor, he was prepared. He'd never admit, of course, to being a former priest. Instead, he'd say he burned out while working as a school administrator. Too many egos, he'd add with a laugh, but no one ever asked. During the summer of 2005, Jack Ballard's daily routine before leaving home for the restaurant had gotten pretty nuts. He'd just recounted the pens and notebooks in his briefcase. 150 and 7, respectively, and scrubbed his hands again and changed his shirt for the fifth time. He couldn't clean the kitchen again because it was already spotless and all the dishes were washed and put away. His craziness went far beyond his obsessive-compulsive disorder. Days at the restaurant were a string of panic attacks, chronic worry compounded by a deep sense of dread. His thoughts raced, and sometimes his lunacy turned physical, nausea mixed with heart-pounding chest pain, and then hyperventilation. But the mental stuff was the worst. Enslaved by his malfunctioning brain, he often wished he could just run away from everything, from his wife and daughter, the restaurant, his entire life. That's when the thoughts of suicide kicked in. His mental illness took a toll on his young family as well. Jack wished he was closer to his daughter, but his paranoia was a loud distraction and had prevented any meaningful bonding. She was only going to be a toddler once, and because of his madness, he was missing out on lots of memories. His marriage was troubled too. Earlier that year, Jack and Cindy had gone to a couple's counselor to deal with the stresses of work and money, because Jack, who hadn't read the contractual small print, had struck a bad deal with his financial backer. He was working his ass off at the restaurant, but earning very little. So he'd taken a part-time construction job to bring in more cash. The couple's counseling helped a little bit. They learned techniques to keep their work and home lives separate. But of course, the restaurant wasn't the real issue. Everyone ignored the elephant in the room, Jack's mental problems. In the fall of 2005, X was exasperated by a sudden flurry of requests from the Diocese of Springfield. For the past decade since he'd started at Harmony House, they'd basically left him alone. Every once in a while, he'd get a phone call from the diocesan clergy monitor, a deacon whose part-time job was to keep an eye on wayward priests. X would answer the deacon's questions, and as soon as the call was over, forget the man even existed. That's how little he thought of the situation. As far as X was concerned, he wasn't responsible to the diocese anymore. He didn't consider himself a priest, and he certainly didn't present himself as one. But the bishop and the Vatican wanted to officially defrock or laicize all the ex-priests who'd caused them trouble, especially repeat offenders, and in the eyes of the bishop, that included ex. Because the year prior, in 2004, the Diocese of Springfield settled an $8.5 million lawsuit involving 45 victims of 18 priests. One of those priests was Father X. One of the victims was Michael Shannon, a student and altar boy at 
Olsh back in the early 1970s. Long before Jack at St. Stephen's or David at Our Lady of Hope, Michael's mother had written an angry letter to the bishop and kept a copy. That letter disappeared from Father X's secret file, along with David Stanley's mother's letter. The 100000 bucks paid to Michael Shannon obviously didn't come out of X's pocket, but the investigation and settlement had dredged up a ton of ugly memories and shame. He'd thought he'd put that all behind him when he surrendered his Roman collar. Now the bishop wanted to make X's dismissal 100% official. The defrocking process involved various reports, investigations, and questions. The diocese suggested X write a letter to the Vatican telling his story. The letter, they said, would never be made public, totally confidential and top secret. Eight months later, on a spring morning in 2006, the phone rang and X almost let the answering machine take the call, but the area code was 413, Western Massachusetts. So the former priest picked up. Hello? Uh, Hello, Mr. X. My name is Kevin Murphy, and I'm calling from the Springfield Diocese. The clergy monitor gave me your number. I was wondering if you could spare a couple minutes to talk to me. I suppose, X replied. Damn it, he thought to himself. Should have never picked up the phone. Please make this quick, though. I have to be somewhere for an appointment very soon, he lied. Okay, fair enough. I've been hired by the Diocese Misconduct Commission to investigate complaints of sexual misconduct against clergy and former clergy. Investigate? Like a police officer? Well, I'm a retired state police detective, Murphy said. So more like an ex-police officer. Oh, I'm calling about a complaint by a man named Joshua Laurie. Do you remember Mr. Laurie? Listen, I wrote a letter to the Vatican last year about this. At the time, I was told it would be the end of it. To the Vatican? Yes, it was part of being laicized. I, I wrote the Vatican and told them. I explained things. About Mr. Laurie? Listen, I don't really want to talk about it, and I'm running late. Uh, just one more thing, uh, so I can file this report. You're saying you wrote a letter to the Vatican explaining your relationship with Mr. Laurie? Yes, about him and my situation, and about another boy. Another boy? Murphy asked. Who, who was that? I'm sorry, I have to go, X paused. That was stupid. Why even mention the possibility of another boy, of Jack? I won't get into that again, X told Murphy. I have to go, I'm already late. One last thing to clarify, do you admit to abusing Mr. Laurie and another boy? And Who is this other boy? Goodbye, detective. A year passed. And in mid-2007, X's career as a drug and alcohol counselor was officially over. Retirement at last. He wasn't going to miss Harmony House, that was for sure. Cleaning out his office didn't take long. Even after 11 years on the job, his workplace was completely devoid of personal effects. Almost. From his top desk drawer, X removed an envelope he'd received several years earlier. He didn't read the letter often. Didn't need to. X knew what it said. By heart. It was a thank you from a former patient. A young man he'd helped. You taught me to believe in myself, the young man wrote. You believed in me before I even believed in myself. X tried hard to picture the young man's face, but couldn't. He placed the envelope in his briefcase and took it home. It was the only letter of thanks he'd ever received while working as a counselor. You're a priest? Interesting, Jack Ballard said. Never would have guessed. He took a long drag off his smoke. It was early April 2008, and he was standing on the deck of his bustling restaurant, chatting up the middle-aged man who'd come in for dinner several times a week during the past month, always alone with a book. Guilty as charged, Father Gerald Shea said with a laugh. I wear civilian clothes when I'm off duty. Makes dinner a lot more enjoyable, I gotta admit. 
don't want to be bothered by the hoi polloi while eating your delicious food, Jack and the bookworm had chatted during a couple smoke breaks before. Jack took another puff of his smoke, then sipped his beer to keep his trap shut. He liked Father Shea and didn't want to scare off a good customer with the truth he knew about the Catholic Church, an unrepentantly evil institution, in his opinion. Barack Hussein Obama wasn't even born in the United States, Jack said with authority. He's not eligible for the presidency. Oh, come on, you don't really believe that, Father Shea said good-naturedly. It was a warm evening in May. He and Jack were becoming real pals. The fellow was intense, Father Shea thought, and sometimes dark, but he was also very generous and kind-hearted and deeply wounded by something awful. By now, Father Shea was well aware that Jack was no fan of the church. It was one of several topics that always triggered a table-pounding, beer-spilling fit, along with the subjects of crime and candidate Obama's citizenship. Jack's fury was irrational and unnecessary, which worried Father Shea because Cindy and Jack were pregnant with their second child. Jack needed to get his emotions under control, to be a better dad, to be a better husband, to be a better man. And now there is something else about Jack that troubled Father Shea. The night before, in the midst of an unrelated conversation, Jack blurted out, Father X sexually molested me. With that, he downed the rest of his drink and took a final drag on his smoke and stalked back into the restaurant without a word. Father Shea had been stunned. The source of Jack's pain and suffering was now clear to his new friend, but he was wary of bringing up the subject at the restaurant while Jack was on the job. Besides, Jack needed to discuss such terrible trauma with a shrink, not a priest. So Father Shea vowed to convince Jack somehow to see a therapist. A few months later, in late September, Jack and Father Shea were alone on the deck of the restaurant. It was close to closing time. I carry a gun because I don't want to be a victim of violent crime, Jack said, taking a long sip of beer. That's my biggest fear, being a victim of violent crime. He took another sip. Not me. It ain't going to happen. Father Shea took a deep breath. He didn't want to blow this fleeting chance for a breakthrough. You do realize, he said cautiously, you were a victim. You are a victim of a violent crime. Huh? Jack stared at him blankly. What are you talking about? Back when Father X, the priest paused again, weighing words, molested you. That was a violent crime. The priest watched Jack for reaction. The poor fella had obviously never made the connection between his fears and the abuse he'd suffered so long ago. Jack said nothing, then started to sob. Father Shea placed both hands on his friend's heaving shoulders. I could call some people at the diocese, Father Shea said, and we could see about getting you some help for free. My whole life has been a lie, Jack said, standing in the bedroom doorway that night. Cindy was awake. She'd been sitting in bed, reading and waiting for him. I feel like a ton of bricks have been dropped on my head. What do you mean? She asked. His voice sounded different. Honey, what's the matter? She rolled over and put her feet on the floor. Slowly, the baby was due in less than a month. Remember a long time ago before we were married and I, I told you that I'd been abused? Yes. Well, Jack paused and breathed deeply. A priest did it. Father X, when I was an altar boy at St. Stephen's. Then the sobbing started again, which surprised Jack. He didn't think he had any tears left. From when I was 10 until I was 14. Oh my God, Jack, you poor thing. Cindy struggled to get to her feet, her arms outstretched to wrap him in her love. Well, Father Shea has been very helpful. I think I'm starting to understand. It's been like an invisible, controlling hand, running my life, ruining my life.
The intake process with the diocese victim's advocate was much easier than Jack thought it would be. The social worker gently asked him simple questions and took notes on everything he said, how Father X had fondled, molested, and physically attacked him. The horrible night at St. Matthew's, Jack's dread of what would have happened if the priest had unlocked that bathroom door. The rest of the story spilled out of him. His depression and anger, the paranoia and the OCD, how he wanted to be a better dad and husband, a better man, and how Father Shea made him realize he needed help now before the birth of his second child. It must have been very tough for you to come forward, so I just have a couple more questions, the advocate said. What are you expecting from your contact with the diocese? I'm not sure exactly, Jack said, but I know I could use some counseling. That's why Father Shea set up this meeting. The victim's advocate handed him several printed pages on diocesan letterhead. Well, here's some information about the review board process and the possibility of meeting with the bishop and about our counseling plan. I think the first thing we need to do is find you a psychiatrist who can help, maybe even prescribe you some meds. The telephone number the diocese had for X was no longer accepting incoming calls. Kevin Murphy, the former state trooper investigating abuse allegations on behalf of the diocese review board, was frustrated but undeterred. After X was laicized, he no longer had to keep the diocese informed of his whereabouts. Over the past couple of weeks, Murphy had interviewed Jack Ballard, his wife, Cindy, and Father Shea, and found them all to be credible witnesses. While reviewing the Office of Victim Services records, he was reminded that he'd briefly spoken with the ex-priest two years earlier about the abuse of Joshua Lorry. X had admitted to abusing Joshua and mentioned writing a letter to the Vatican confessing sins against two boys. Was Jack the second boy X had refused to name on the phone? That's what Murphy wanted to know. So he sat at his computer and composed a letter. He began by reminding X of their conversation back in 2006. Quote, Now I am investigating an allegation made by Jack Ballard. I wonder if this is the other name you self-reported to Rome, end quote. Murphy ended the letter by asking X to respond with a short note or a phone call to clarify this matter. A week later, Murphy got an envelope in the mail from X. It contained the former detective's original letter, and the question about Jack was circled in black ink. Next to it was a single word, yes. For Murphy, that was enough. Now he was able to finish his three-page report to the Misconduct Commission about Jack's allegations. In conclusion, he typed, you will see by the response to my letter by Mr. X that Jack Ballard is telling the truth. I find Jack to be very credible and his witnesses very supportive. It was now early December 2008. Father Shea sat behind his desk in the rectory stewing with anger over the diocese's lack of response to Jack's complaint about X. It had been almost two months since he encouraged Jack to file a report with the Misconduct Commission, and while the social worker had said they would pay for counseling, now the diocese seemed to be dragging their feet, and that seemed odd to Father Shea, since the diocesan investigator had confirmed that the ex-priest admitted to molesting Jack. A months-long delay was unacceptable. Having finally revealed the abuse, Jack's psychic wounds were now reopened, unleashing a Pandora's box of inner demons that Jack needed help getting under control. The priest decided he needed to step in again. After all, it was his prodding that convinced Jack to acknowledge the abuse. If the diocese wasn't going to provide counseling, then Father Shea would get his friend the help he needed. He picked up the desk phone and dialed the number of a parishioner, a medical doctor who might be able to recommend a shrink to help Jack finally start healing.
Dr. Tim Riley typed his notes into his computer, unaware that his words would someday, years later, end up in unsealed court records. For the past few months, he'd been having weekly sessions with Jack, learning his history and his hurts. Quote, Father X's sexual abuse constituted a unique violation of trust by an individual that Jack regarded as a special and superhuman-like person, end quote. Then the shrink added his diagnosis of Jack's problems. It was a long list. Obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, major depressive disorder, polysubstance abuse disorder. According to Jack, he wasn't using booze and weed anymore. Good thing, since Jack and Cindy had their hands full with the new baby and the restaurant and the rest of their responsibilities. But Jack's psychological foundation was in shambles. As Dr. Riley noted, the 38-year-old felt abnormal, inferior to others, plagued by existential loneliness, intense shame, and guilt. These stresses manifested in various ways, Dr. Riley observed. Jack had trouble trusting others, especially authority figures, and he was angry at all institutions, not just the church. He hated the government, the media, Americans' education, and criminal justice systems. The doctor's treatment plan was very straightforward. Pharmaceuticals and talk therapy, plus more physical exercise and he'd like to increase their therapy sessions. One 45-minute session a week was barely scratching the surface. Twice a week would be much more helpful, and he estimated that Jack's treatment plan would require at least one full year of intense therapy, or even more. Problem was, Dr. Riley's efforts to discuss this plan with the social worker at the diocese were very frustrating. She'd been avoiding his calls, And, according to Father Shea, she'd been ignoring his phone calls as well. When the doctor finally reached the church social worker, he told her that Jack needed two sessions weekly. Nope, the social worker said. The diocese couldn't afford it. What if he lowered his fees? She said she'd have to get back to him to see what numbers would work. On an early spring day in 2009, Father Shea opened the local telephone book. He was an intelligent man, a Jesuit, which meant he was a member of the so-called Society of Jesus Order of Catholic Priests. Jesuits are believers in education, intellectuals compared to most Catholic priests. Father Shea was also a student of what's called, quote, rational emotive therapy, and that therapeutic approach informed him that Jack needed more than just frequent sessions with the shrink. He needed to know that the diocese had taken responsibility for its sins against him and against all the others that Father Shea now suspected had been molested by X. He looked up the number of a lawyer, a local fellow, a Catholic who'd been involved in many of the lawsuits against the Diocese of Springfield. Father Shea dialed the number and a secretary patched him through. The lawyer listened to Father Shea's version of events. Five minutes later, Jack had an attorney. I won't keep you in suspense about this strand of the story. It took several years, but the lawyer won the case he filed on Jack's behalf. After a brief trial, the church settled the suit for a half million dollars. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. For early access to Devils and Dirtbags, subscribe to MainerNews.com, a worker-owned media cooperative. Visit DevilsAndDirtbags.com for a bibliography of source materials 
plus redacted PDFs of victim statements and never before published secret memos from church leaders. While there, you can learn about my books, my other journalism, and movie, or send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. In January 2017, I stumbled across revelations about Father X's serial sex crimes against young boys, which made me angry enough to eventually track him down and drive 250 miles from my home in rural Maine to ask the former priest some tough questions. I used the element of surprise and a bottle of a hundred-proof bourbon as truth serum. And thanks to a hidden tape recorder, you'll be able to hear Father X, in his own words and voice, explain why he turned out to be so evil.